Brandon. Well, church, um, before we open up God's word and, and read and preach this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Come, Father, thank you so much for the truth of that song. Lord, may we live to praise you. May we join in all of creation to praise you. We read in scripture that the trees clap their hands before you, that, that all of creation uh, demonstrates the glory of who you are. God, we, as that song said, we join the angels in their refrain to praise you. That God, we know if we get a glimpse of who you are, that our mouths will open, that our lives will open, and we'll begin to proclaim your praises. And I pray that that's what would happen here this morning that we would get just a little glimpse by your mercy, by your grace, of your wisdom, of your love, of your kindness, of your steadfast love, as we're going to see today, that never ceases, that never comes to an end. And Lord, as we get a glimpse, may it result in the praise of your glorious grace. Father, this morning as we um, open up your word, I, I pray that we would be like the church in Berea, that we would be uh, a people uh, like that church in Acts that studied the scriptures for themselves daily, that examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. May we be a church that's hungry for your word, that thirsts for your word, that studies your word, and, and may it transform us, Lord. We don't want to be a church that conforms to the patterns of this world. Instead, we want to be a church that's, that's renewed, transformed by the renewal of our mind. So I pray that as we open up your word this morning, that is what would be accomplished and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, hey, if you're new with us, uh, excited that, that you chose this Sunday to maybe to be your first Sunday. We're launching out on a new series uh, called Rebuild. We're going to be looking at the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, if you've been with us for a while, you're probably tired of me saying this, but as a church, one of our distinctives is we want to preach uh, expositionally which means we just want to choose a book of the Bible and preach through that book uh, from beginning to end. It's, it's just called expository preaching. Um, so today we are starting a, a new book, Ezra and Nehemiah. And church, what we're going to see over the next 21 weeks, that's right, you heard me, um, 21 weeks is we're going we're gonna to see God's faithfulness on display. We're going to see God is someone who is steadfast in his love towards his people. And, and church, I, I'm coming to you this morning and studying and praying over Ezra and Nehemiah, really expecting that, that God is going to do a deep work in the life of our church. I really believe that God's going to do a deep life in the li- a deep work in the lives of you and your family in our church, and then by consequence in our community. And, and that's not me trying to pump smoke. If you know me, that's, I'm not a hype guy. Um, I just, as I've prayed, as I've prepared, the, the Spirit of God has, has really been in this. Um, and I really sense He's going to do a mighty work through us. So, um, let me give you a little outline, a um, little teaser. Uh, by faith, God used Ezra and Nehemiah in radical ways. All those, although these two people, as you're going to hear over the next 21 weeks, are very different from one another, both of them were mightily used by God in the rebuilding of the people of God. And the way that Ezra and Nehemiah were stirred by God to rebuild the people of God was, was pretty systematic. They, they first began rebuilding the worship of God. And then they began rebuilding the people of God by teaching and preaching the word of God. And then finally, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, they, they began to rebuild the physical security of, of Jerusalem. They began to rebuild the walls. And as I was preparing, uh, preparing this morning, um, I, I really began to check my own heart. And, and maybe you're a part of this as I lay this out for you. But um, I think it's really tempting for us as a church plant 
Um, if you're new, I think we're 11 months old now. We'll be celebrating one year, August 6th, so we had not made it yet. We're close. One year, you know. But I think it's really easy for us as a church plant, 11 months old, to kind of deceive ourselves, um, to think that the, the growth numerically that we've experienced as a church means that, that God's mighty hand must be upon us because that's what we do as Americans. We equate scalability with the move of God, right? And we can deceive ourselves to think God's just blessing us. God's so you know what we need? We, we're, we're growing. You know what we need? We need a building thank you justin yeah we need a building you know it's really easy and you guys guys if you feel that i I feel that okay and i was thinking about that it's like it'd be easy for us to launch into our second year as a church and and start taking our blueprint for building god's church from the world around us or begin to adopting a blueprint from the church down the street or or the church maybe that you came from And, and i really began to sense no 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 Let's go back to to being the type of church God wants to build. How does God want to build us? Far be it from me, church, as our lead pastor, to manufacture some vision for you. That's not what we're about. God is the shepherd of this church. We are under shepherds. We want to hear what he has to say. Fortunately, he's told us. So let's go back to God's word. Even in this season of our church, this this early season of our church, and see how does God want to build us? How does God want to build his church? Because I would hate to build some physical walls and neglect the building of worship and neglect the building of the word, right, which is what we're going to see in Ezra and Nehemiah. So that's what we're going to be about. Um, so today, we're going to kind of give you a, a flyover of Ezra and Nehemiah. Over the next 21 weeks, we're going to be unpacking these things. But today, I'm going to approach it almost like a, like a puzzle. Um, how many of you like puzzles? Like, I'm not talking about the kids' puzzles. I'm talking about, like, the real ones, you know. Like thousand piece puzzles, like I love puzzles like that. And there are two essential steps in putting a puzzle together like that, right? You open up the box, you dump out all the pieces, and what do you do first? Hate it, yeah, right? Flip every piece over, essential. You have to do it. I hate doing it. It's tedious. It doesn't feel like you're getting anywhere. You're not seeing the puzzle come together, but it's essential. You have got to flip over every pieces to get a view of the land, to kind of get a lay of the land, to see where we're headed. Second step in building a puzzle is what? you got to get the corners. And then you got to start filling in that border, right? Because the border provides the, the frame, the frame of reference for all of these other pieces to go into. That's all today is going to be about in Ezra and Nehemiah. I'm going to flip over some pieces. I hope you brought a pen and paper. We're going to cover all of the Old Testament in 30 minutes, okay? And we're going to flip over, over these pieces because I, I want us to see how does Ezra and Nehemiah fit into the story of the Bible? How does Ezra and Nehemiah fit? And then we're going to give a little bit of a border. We're going to go a little bit deeper, going to start framing and go, why is it important for us today? So those are the two questions we're going to be asking. Where does Nehemiah and Ezra fit in the story of Scripture, and how is it relevant for us today? Okay, so I am going to use slides. I am not technologically literate, so we're going to see how this goes this morning. Okay, first question then, where does Ezra and Nehemiah fit in the Bible? So first thing I want to say is we're preaching Ezra and Nehemiah, and that's intentional. Because in, in the Hebrew tradition, Ezra and Nehemiah wasn't two books, it was one book. It was one book titled Ezra and Nehemiah. So in the Hebrew tradition, it's always been one book. It wasn't until the 3rd century B.C. when the Hebrew Bible was translated into the Greek Bible, called the Septuagint, that it became two. It divided into Ezra and Nehemiah, but most scholars believe it's one story probably written by Ezra as a single author, and consequently, I believe it should be studied and preached as one story, okay? So we're going to be preaching through 
Ezra, Nehemiah as one book. But where does it fit? In terms of this scripture, where does it fit? Well, it's in the Old Testament. All right, here's a little Bible survey. There will be a quiz at the end of this, okay? In your Bible, how many books are there? 66. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, okay? 39 in the Old Testament. Ezra and Nehemiah are in the Old Testament. In fact, let me just show you where they're at, okay? Great little little screen here. So in your Bible, this is how your Old Testament is organized. It goes from the Torah, the book of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, into the historical writings. The historical writings cover the period of Joshua to Esther, okay? And you can see right above Esther, what do you see? Ezra and Nehemiah, right? So in your Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah are found almost smack dab in the middle of your Old Testament, okay? And then after the historical writings, you have the poetic writings, you have the major prophets and the minor prophets. Here's a little tidbit for you. The major prophets aren't major because they're more important, and the minor prophets aren't minor because they're less important. They're, they're just shorter books. So the major prophets are longer books. The minor prophets are shorter books, okay? So this is how your Bible is organized. From Genesis to Malachi, that's the 39 books of the Old Testament. But how many of you have ever tried to read through the Old Testament and get really confused? You know why? Because the Old Testament is organized by genre. It's organized, categorized by genre. So a lot of these books are covering events that are happening simultaneously. This is not linear. It's not chronological. You don't end Genesis and then go to Exodus, then in Eticus and go, some of these things are happening on top of each other. They're all happening at the same time. So when you're reading through the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, you get confused because there's like a thousand characters and various narratives. And you have this like northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and you have all these prophets, and you're wondering, when are these prophets actually prophesying? It can get confusing because our Bibles are organized by genre, right? But to really understand and flip over the pieces of Ezra and Nehemiah, we need to see where they fall chronologically, okay? So here's the item. Sorry for, for those who can't see this, okay? But this is, a, this is a chronological view of the Old Testament. This is how things happen in order of events. It, it begins with Genesis. But as you'll see at the bottom of Genesis, you have Job, right? Job dates really far back. But then you move into the rest of the books of the Torah, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Just as your Bible does, it then moves into the historical writings. you got Joshua and Judges and 1 Samuel. But then towards the end of Samuel, the, the people of Israel don't want judges anymore. They want kings. We want to be like the nations around us. We want a king. So God gives them a king named Saul. After Saul, he gives them David. David, a king after God's own heart. And it's during this period of, of 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, we get most of the poetic writings. The Psalms. And then David's son, Solomon, who takes the throne gives us Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, okay? Y'all following me chronologically? When Solomon goes away, though, and all these other kings come up, they, they reject their God. The people of Israel reject their God. Division occurs. Israel splits into two, right? Kind of like America tried to do. So we, we split into two. You have the northern kingdom of Israel, and you have the southern kingdom of Judah. And they have totally rejected their God. And during this period of First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles, God sends them the prophets, many prophets, and the prophets have two folds uh, of their ministry. They're calling the people of Israel back to God, saying, repent. You've got to come back to God. You've got to renew your commitment to God. And then secondly, and I'll talk more about this in a little bit, they begin prophesying a future. 
a, a unified future for the people of God that was going to be established by none other than the Messiah. That's what the prophets would do. But they didn't listen. And I'll go into more detail about this in a second. They didn't listen. And, and what does God do? That little rainbow there is God sends them into exile. The kingdom of Israel, the north, and the kingdom of Judah in the south are deported. They're conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Know him? Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They get conquered. So all the people of Israel get deported, get taken away from Israel, and they're scattered throughout the kingdom of Babylon. But, but then God, and we're going to see this in a second, in his love and his sovereignty, stirs up a return. He's committed to his people. So the people of God return to Israel. Church, that's what Ezra and Nehemiah chronicle. Ezra and Nehemiah tells the story of the return of God's people back to their land. And Haggai, Zechariah prophesied during the time of Ezra, where Malachi prophesies during the time of Nehemiah. So all I want you to see right now is where does Ezra and Nehemiah fit in the chronology of the Bible? Church, it's the last story of the Old Testament. The return of God's people to Jerusalem is the last story of the Old Testament. So when you complete the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, you flip to the New Testament, okay? And that's going to be important. I'm going to tell you why in a second, okay? So I flipped over the pieces. Y'all with me? Everybody know where Ezra and Nehemiah now are in the story of Scripture? Let's start building a little bit of a border. To understand Ezra and Nehemiah, there are two significant theological ideas that we have to have a, a basic understanding of. That's covenant and this Hebrew word of hesed. Anybody ever heard this before? Okay, covenant and hesed. And I'm going to unpack these because these two themes are so important to understand, not just Ezra and Nehemiah, but to understand the coming of Jesus, okay? So let's start with, with covenant. Covenant is like a contract. It's a treaty. It's, it's a will. It's not, probably not a word you've used of late. How many times have you made a covenant of late? In our context, covenant is, is usually familiar with what? Marriage. It's about the only thing we, we liken to a covenant. It's a contractual relationship between two people. And every covenant kind of carries the same three ingredients, okay? You have the basis of that covenant. So in a marriage, the basis of a covenant is a husband and a wife who mutually agree to come into a contractual relationship with one another, right? The basis of that relationship are two parties and their love for each other. The conditions of that covenant are usually expressed in vows. I'm going to love you, uh, you know, as Christ loves the church, till death do us part, through sickness and in health. We, we establish these conditions and we all know the consequences, right? When we honor that covenant before God, God blesses. When we break that covenant through things like divorce, the consequences can, can, can be terrible, can't they? It's the same with God. All throughout Scripture, God is a covenant-making God. He is inviting His people. He's choosing to create a contractual relationship with people. But the basis, this is important, the basis of God's covenants with people is nothing other than his own steadfast love. It is his love alone. It has nothing to do with his people, has nothing to do with us, has nothing to do with what you do or what you say or how you look. It is all about God's grace, God's covenant love. And that's the second point. It's this Hebrew word of hesed. If you were to be able to search this word, church, you would see it riddled throughout the Old Testament. The hesed of God is all throughout the Old Testament. And, and what it means is what I have on the screen here. Mercy, 
steadfast love, kindness, or goodness. God establishes and upholds a contractual relationship with his people because he has hesed, because he is steadfast in his love for his people. Don't worry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure this makes sense, okay? You didn't think you'd get a seminary degree, did you? But here we are. Building the border, okay? God's a covenant God. So let me give you a few examples. There are a lot of different covenants. I'm going to just give you a handful that are going to m- help us make sense of Ezra and Nehemiah. In Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15, God establishes a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of their descendants. And in that covenant, he says, Abraham, I am going to bless you. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's in Genesis chapter 12. What is the basis of that covenant? Hesed. Just that God is loving. Just that God chose Abraham. In fact, Deuteronomy makes it clear. It was not because you were more in number, Abraham's descendants, than any other people that the Lord set his hesed on you and chose you. For you were actually the fewest of all people. Church, God's covenant with the people of Israel had nothing to do with them, nothing to do with Abraham. It had everything to do with who God is. He is faithful. He is kind. He is steadfast in his love towards his people. So they enter into covenant. And we all know the story. After Joseph, the people of Israel go into captivity. They're, they're slaves in the land of Egypt, and God remembers his covenant. And he selects this man named Moses to lead his covenant people out of slavery, to give them their own land. And they cross the Red Sea, and God says, hey, Gotcha, okay? I'm your God. You are my people. I have set my love on you. Why? Because God is loving. But he says something different in the Mosaic Covenant. This is found in Exodus and Deuteronomy. He gives them some some conditions. He says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people, but you've got to do what I say. Here are the conditions. And he lays them out in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. And he also gives them some consequences. So let let me share this with you, okay? Conditions are laid out in Leviticus. We're going to look at it. Yes, we went to Leviticus today. Okay, Leviticus chapter 26. God lays out the conditions and the consequences of this covenant. He says this in verse 1. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods. I'm your God. Here's the covenant. I am your God. You are my people. Nobody else is coming in between this. This is between you and I. I am your God. And then it moves into verse 3 and begins to lay out all the blessings of this relationship. If you follow me, he says, I'll bless you. I'll bless you. I'll bless you. But then you get to verse 14. He says, but if, if you don't listen to me, if you don't do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, in verse 16, he begins to list these negative consequences. He says, I'll send pestilence on you. Disease will hit you. And then he says this in verse 18. Oop, I went back. In verse 18, he says, and if in spite of this, so in, in spite of this disease that I'm going to send on you, in spite of this pestilence that I'm going to send on you, that you don't listen to me, I'm going to discipline you even further. I'm going to discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Hey, hey, church, hear this. This is the hesed of God, right? In our sin, we hear this and go, how, how terrible that God would do that. He's like, man, I made it clear. We established the basis of this relationship. I laid out the conditions. If you break them, there are negative consequences. But even in this is the faithfulness and the steadfast love of God. Because what God is saying is these, these, 
consequences are intended to call you back to me. I'm going to send pestilence. I'm going to send disease. But that's to get your attention to bring you back to me. And if you don't listen, it's going to get worse. If you don't listen, there are more consequences coming to the point where at the end, towards the end of this chapter, he says, I'm going to bring the sword upon you. I'll execute judgment on you. Why? For the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I'll send pestilence among them. You shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. He says, and I'll scatter you among the nations. I'll unseed the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall, shall be a waste. Church, do you, do you see the consequences of this covenant relationship with God? But I want to show you the end of this chapter. Because the story of, of the Bible is God's love. The story of Scripture is God's covenant, steadfast love. Because he concludes this chapter by saying, but listen, even in spite of all this, even in spite of you not listening to me, you're not coming back to me, if you just confess your sin and the sins of your fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humble and they make amends for their iniquity, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, with Isaac, and Abraham. Because I'm not going to forget this. I made a covenant with Abraham, and I'm not going to forget. And he, he goes on to conclude this chapter by saying, yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, like, so when they are exiled, I'm not going to spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers. All right, so, so you with me so far where we're at? God is, has made a covenant with his people. And there are some conditions to following this. And if not, there are some deep consequences. And in the story of, of Isra Israel's history, things go pretty well for a time. Or at least the patience of God is evident. So under David, when, when, when things are going well, it's the golden age of Israel's history. But what we see in First and Second Kings is that things take a turn for the worse. These kings begin to reject God. They begin to follow after idols. They break covenant with God. And what happens when they break covenant with God? Well, you think consequences. But before consequences, there is the hesed of God. The steadfast love of God is put on display because he sends prophets. He sends these prophets to say, please turn back. I don't want to do this. I don't want to throw these consequences on you. I want you to come back. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. Return to me. That's what the prophets are screaming at the people of Israel. But they won't listen. So even while they're not listening, God demonstrates his faithful love. He begins to send prophets to talk about this thing called the new covenant. He begins to say, right now they can't. They can't be faithful to me as I'm faithful to them. So I'm going to send a new I'm going to make a new covenant with them. This is what Jeremiah chapter 31 says about this new covenant. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That covenant, what did they do? They, they broke it. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Do you hear the intimacy, the relationship that exists between God and his people? He says, I was their husband. I was committed to them, but they were faithless. In fact, if you read the prophets, you'll read some language in there. You'll read about how the people of God whored after other gods all throughout the Old Testament. The prophets were saying, even though they're doing this, God says, I was committed to them. They, they broke the covenant, although I was their husband. But I'll make a new covenant with them. 
And this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. Instead of writing it on tablets of stone like the Mosaic covenant, he said, I'll write it on their hearts. Then I will be their God and they shall be my people. He goes on and says, no longer shall each teach his neighbor, each his brother, saying, know the Lord. For now everyone will have, will get to know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, because I will forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sin no more. So church, in this story of Israel's history, they had been faithless. They had broke covenant with God, and God starts promising, there's going to come a day where this is going to be different. There's going to come a day where my people will be faithful instead of faithless. You know how that's going to happen? God says, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to give them a new heart. I'm going to give them a new spirit. I'm going to make it possible for them to follow me because right now it's just impossible for them to follow me. And what we know, right, centuries removed, is that that was fulfilled in Jesus. We'll talk about this later in our day, but, but Jesus came to establish the new covenant, to inaugurate this new covenant. But right now, as we're walking through this chronology of the Old Testament, God has laid out the conditions. He's laid out the consequences. He starts promising and, and prophesying a future hope. But in the meantime, what happens? Judgment. They, they had broken the, the, the uh, I'll come back to that. They, they've broken their covenant. So judgment comes. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered and exiled to the land of Assyria. This is uh, chronicled in 2 Kings chapter 17. So I'm going to read from 2 Kings 17 to show you this judgment. 2 Kings chapter 17 verse 7 reads this. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations. And the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. So the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered and exiled. Why? Really, their sin was categorized in in twofold. They had rejected God, and they conformed to the world around them. Do you see that in that scripture? They, they, They broke up with God. We don't want you. We want other gods. They rejected God, and then they began to walk in the customs of the nations around them. They rejected God, and they conformed to the world around them. That's why exile took place for the kingdom of Israel. But what about the southern kingdom? All right, about about 100 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered in exile. Read this about Zedekiah, okay? Zedekiah was the king of of Judah when this happened. He says he stiffened his neck, and he hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. And all the officers and the priests and the people, likewise, were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. Why was the southern kingdom of Judah judged and exiled? Because they had rejected their God and they had conformed to the world around them. Israel and Judah, both happened. They had rejected God and they conformed to the world around them. But look at the hesed of God. This is in the same, the same paragraph. It says, the, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had hesed. He, he had compassion on his people. He didn't want to judge them. He had compassion on them. So he sent them, his messengers, his, his prophets. But what did they do? They just kept mocking the messengers of God. They despised his words and they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. He laid it all out. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, laid it out. If you keep rejecting me, something's going to happen. 
until there is no remedy, what happens? They were taken into exile. The, the ultimate judgment had taken place. Why? They had rejected their God and they conformed to the world around them. So church, this is where we are. You're getting the border, beginning to kind of make sense what's going on here. They're exiled. They're exiled because they rejected God and they conformed to the patterns of this world. And this is where Ezra and Nehemiah show up. After 70 years of living in exile, of living under the judgment of God, God stirs something up to lead a return and to lead a rebuild. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah chronicle. Ezra and Nehemiah talks about the faithful love of God in the return of his people and in the rebuilding of his people. So, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Ezra chapter 1. We're just going to read the first three verses today to continue to kind of build out this border to see what's going on here in Ezra and Nehemiah. So Ezra chapter 1, I'm going to put it on the screen for you as well. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has uh, charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. The Lord stirred up this pagan king named Cyrus. And I'm going to spend all next week talking about that, that process, okay? But it was God. Was it anything that the people of Israel did? They didn't do anything. They didn't do anything to earn his, faith, his faithfulness, his steadfast love. It was God. God took matters into his own hands because he is faithful to his covenant even when his people are faithless. He stirs up this return and this rebuild, and that's what Ezra and Nehemiah are all about. They chronicle the return, they chronicle the rebuild, and it happens in three waves, okay? Again, I'm, I'm giving you the borders. This is tedious work, but it's important for us over the next 20 weeks. Ezra and Nehemiah chronicles about 100 years of return. The return takes place over about 100 years, and it take, takes place in about three big waves. The first wave occurs in Ezra chapters 1 through 6, and that's led by a man, man by the name of Zerubbabel. I said this in the first service, for all you pregnant mothers still looking for a, a name, I highly recommend it. That's a good one, okay? Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is, is the governor, the leader who leads back the first wave of God's people. And Zerubbabel focuses on the rebuilding of the worship of God. That's where you start. You build your worship, and they begin to construct the temples. So they can offer sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Once again, it's a renewal of their covenant by rebuilding their worship. Ezra leads the second wave. That's Ezra chapter 7 through 10. Ezra's a scribe. He's, he's a teacher. And Ezra had a heart to know the law of God, to, to learn the law of God, to memorize the law of God, to teach the law of God. So Ezra returns with a bunch of people and begins to teach the word again. He's building their life and their society around the word. And then finally you have Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a cupbearer, and, and Nehemiah led the third wave. He was really a layman and began to focus on the rebuilding of the physical security of Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls of the city. That's Nehemiah. All right, so that's our frame. 
Ezra and Nehemiah, chronicling the return and the rebuild, but I had another question I have to answer. Why study them today? Like, aren't they in the Old Testament? Like, isn't that irrelevant? The answer is no. Let me just go on the record and say no, okay? Why study them today? Well, first, Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says this. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Whatever was written in former days, church, was written for our instruction. We need to hear what Ezra and Nehemiah have to say so that, by God's grace, we can avoid the same consequences that the people of Israel found themselves in. Are you following me? And what were those consequences dictated by? Like, why did they get exiled? Why did they get judged? They had rejected God, and they conformed to the world around them. Wake up. Is this not the nation you live in, that we live in? Is this not the story of our story currently? Church, J.I. Packer in the 1980s said that he believes that there was a, a judgment happening on America and on the Western church for its manifold disobedience to God and unfaithfulness to his word. That was in the 1980s. Do you not think that we as a nation have largely rejected God? I'm talking generally speaking, not specifically, but we've largely rejected God. The past few decades, I think, have proven that statistically. We've seen an erosion of faith. In fact, there's a secular movement, you can Google it, called The Death of God, which chronicles the lack of belief in God in America. In 1970, Pew Research put out this study just recently, actually in 2019. But in 1970, church, 90% of Americans affiliated as Christian, whether they are or not, God knows the heart, right? But in 1970, 90% of Americans would have affiliated themselves as Christians. In 2009, approximately, what is that, 40 years later, that number had decreased 12 percentage points to 78%. So 40 years, 12% had decreased from 2009 to 2019. You know what that jumped to? 64%, an additional 14 percentage points. 40 years, we dropped 12. 10 years, we dropped 14. What do you think's happened from 2019 to 2023? I don't have the statistics for that, but I don't think it's good. I think we've slipped even further. I think we've rejected God. Church, God is is dying in in America, and and I beat this drum throughout Acts, so I'm not going to hurt anybody today. But I don't, I don't know if things in the church are any better. I think we play church sometimes. I think we use churchy words. But if we were really honest, what David Wells, theologian, who I think has a really good pulse on our culture right now, uh, says is true. So if I think if we were honest, this is what we would say. God, for me, is less interesting than television. God commands less authority than my own appetite for influence or affluence. And God's truth is less compelling than my truth or less compelling than an advertiser's sweet fog of flattery. That's what David Wells writes. Man, let that kind of kick you in the gut for a second. Like, is that true for you? Like, is that true for us as a society that God commands less attention than television? That God commands less authority than my own appetites? Here's a litmus test for you. When's the last time you fasted? That'll, That'll reveal your appetite whether I want God or not. And you're going to hear me talk a lot about fasting through Ezra and Nehemiah because it's all throughout there. Church, I believe that largely we have rejected God. But I want to be clear, this isn't true for the majority world church. And what I mean for that, this isn't true for the church in Asia. 
this isn't true for the church in Africa, true for the church in the Middle East. Like, we've got to kind of pull ourselves out of the coastal empire and realize that we are brothers and sisters with people all over the world. And the church in those nations, y'all, is thriving. The hand of God is moving all over those churches. I think it's the church in the West. I think it's our post-Christian secular society that has led to the rejection of God. But I think we've also conformed to the people around us, too. Instead of being a distinct people of God, I, I think we are tempted to play church by the rules of this world. I don't, I don't know where there is fasting, where there is true prayer, where there is true hunger after God, but, but we're deceived, right? Because we say, well, churches are growing. But why are they growing? Y'all, we cannot equate growth with the move of the Spirit of God. You can actually equate growth with Western business practices of scalability or consumerism or materialism, whatever you want to call it. That can be the case for growth. But we've adopted those practices and we've applied them to the church and we equate them with the power of God. I just don't think that's the way to go. We've built a lot of buildings over the last few decades, but, but are they present with the power and the presence of God? I'm just asking honestly. I'm not trying to be judgmental, but I'm just asking. We come wanting to be transformed, but, but I think we, as a church, as people of God, reject the fact that we need to live unconformed. Church, just look around. Is this not where we are? Like, generally speaking, he, hear David Wells one more time. He says, in short, I believe the church in the West has given up their green cards. Instead, they've taken up citizenship in this world. We're done with all this just passing through stuff. We just want to settle in, buy homes, open up IRAs, plan to be here for the long term. We have, in short, just become like the world around us. Church, I believe this is where we are. I think that's our, our focus. I, I, and I don't know if it's any better. Once again, within the church, like, like look at the, the mainstream Protestant denominations of America. Are they not rife with division between some who want to be faithful to the word of God and others who want to be faithful to the culture around us? I think liberal teaching is running amok, which is leading us to adopt the cultural practices of America instead of being a distinct people of God. I think it's where we are. I think we're in a period of judgment. But y'all, there's, there's hope. Like, there's so much hope. It's not over. <laughs> like, I, I know I don't have enough time to get as passionate as I am about this, but, but, but gracious, like, Stop complaining about the cultural decline of America. Light a candle. Do something. We have the spirit within us. We can actually turn the tide. You can do that. It happens. It happens. And we're going to see it in Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to see the spirit of God stir people to rebuild his kingdom, to come back to him. I think that can take place in America. There's hope. We don't have to sit idly by. We can be involved in this thing. I think it's without question that the church of God in America needs to be rebuilt. I think the question is, how do we go about it? And fortunately, he's told us. Fortunately, we can study Ezra and Nehemiah, and we can learn from God what it looks like to rebuild his people. And I pray, church, I pray you engage. I pray you invite the Spirit of God to speak into your heart and into your life and show you how he's stirring you to be a part of that, because it's what he does. I saw that, you saw that scripture of Lamentations. Y'all, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, ever. His has said is always present, always calling back. His, his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Just turn back to him. All we have to do is return. He'll rebuild his people. I believe he'll do it in America. So here's how we're going to close today, okay? 
uh, I've given you the, we flipped over the pieces. Uh, uh, we've tried to provide a little bit of a border. I hope it hasn't been too confusing. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something a little weird. I'm going to give you the last couple pieces of the puzzle. You know that feeling? Isn't that a good feeling, you know? Put those last couple pieces, everything comes to completion. I'm actually going to give you the last couple pieces. The end of Ezra and Nehemiah actually ends pretty depressingly. Like after 100 years of reform and revival and rebuilding, Ezra and Nehemiah finishes with the people of Israel rejecting God and conforming to the world around them. As soon as Ezra and Nehemiah go back to Babylon to finish up their duties under the king, they return to find that all the people are now working on the Sabbath again. They're worshiping other gods. Nehemiah gets so angry about it, he starts ripping people's beards out. We're going to see that. So if you want to be a part of that serve team, let me know. Isn't that great? It, it ends immediately with the people of God rejecting him and conforming to the patterns of this world. But the hesed of God never ceases, y'all. So even while we start studying Ezra and Nehemiah and reading it and, and really asking the question, will this ever change? Like, will we as a people ever be faithful to God as he is faithful to us? God gives us an answer. He sends his prophets. He sends Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And here's what they have to say to us. In a time where the people of God are once again faithless, Haggai comes around in Haggai chapter 2 and says, There's a day coming, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Malachi comes around in Malachi 3 and says, Behold, there's a day coming where I will send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the new covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord. And then you have Zechariah. He says, and in that day I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and of mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. That's how the Old Testament ends. It ends leaving us wondering, will we ever be faithful? Will we ever be faithful as he is faithful? And it ends with God sending his prophets saying, there will, there will be. There's coming a day where it's all going to change. There's coming a day. And then you turn to the New Testament. You know, the first page of the New Testament is Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus. The son of Abraham, the son of David. Look at Matthew chapter 1. You know who else's descendant he was? Zerubbabel the signet ring, the chosen one. And then you turn to Luke chapter 1, and you begin to read about the, the announcement of John the Baptist's birth, where the angel Gabriel tells his father, Zechariah, says, this is the messenger who's coming before the Lord to prepare the way of the Lord. And then the Gospels chronicle the story of Jesus' crucifixion, that when you look on him whom you've pierced because of your sin, there will be a spirit of mercy and of grace that will pour out on you. You see the wisdom and the goodness of God. Leaves us wondering if it's ever possible, but it always leaves us with hope that it's possible. It's possible in and through the person of Jesus Christ. So here's how we're going to close this morning. We're going to take communion. So if you're serving our communion, I'd go ahead and encourage you to, to take, your, take your places. You can go ahead and start handing out those elements. Church, communion is an opportunity for us to remember and reflect on the steadfast love of God. The, the bread and the juice, it, it, it represents, it's a symbol of Jesus' 
body being broken and his blood being shed. And if you remember, and I'll read this later in Luke, when Jesus is having the Last Supper with his disciples, he says, this is my body broken for you. Then he takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of the what? New covenant that is shed for you. Church, we, as followers of Jesus Christ, have entered into a new covenant with him based on his grace, based on his chesed. So if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're someone that has entered into this new covenant with God, I, I want to encourage you this morning, take the bread, take the cup, and take a moment as our team plays just to remember his faithfulness. Really reflect, really meditate on the faithfulness of God. If, if you're not a believer, I just want to kindly ask you to let these elements pass you by. We believe that the communion is for those that are a part of the new covenant. But as you let those elements pass you by, I want to invite you invite you to to reflect on the faithfulness of God, on the wisdom of God, on the love of God. Church, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know where you're at in your your walk with God. You may be far from Him. You may have rejected Him. You may be exiled in your sin, so to speak. Just hear me say this clearly. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. His faithfulness is great. Oh, great is His faithfulness. So I pray that as you take communion, if that's you, if you're far from God, you've rejected him, take a minute to come back. Take a minute to lay that down before him, and then I'll come back up and lead us through communion.